America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug drugs are menacing our society. What are your thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the Peace on Drugs. On drugs. Hey, Peace Nicks. Aaron Akul is here to wrap up the year of 2021 in this 28th episode of the Peace on Drugs podcast. If you are listening to this, I should tell you that this special was filmed and available with video on YouTube. And if you are watching, you might notice I got a haircut. Why did I shave and cut off my long hair? I'd like to say it was a decision based on infiltration, pseudo-assimilation. Ah, here comes that hip-hop instrumentation. I'm a Trojan horse in my transfiguration. Sorry. Every time I accidentally rhyme, I go all Wu-Tang. Remember, presidents are temporary. Wu-Tang is forever. Anyway, I got off track. I'd like to say I cut my hair for the same but opposite reason a DEA agent would dress like a hippie to bust someone selling mushrooms. I'm dressing like an average church-going, clean-cut American so I can get more people to listen to what I'm saying about drugs. So I'm not just another long-haired, bearded hippie talking about legalization. Assimilation for the sake of bringing change from within. The noble haircut. Sacrifice for the greater good. But no, if any of this works out that way, it's only by accident. I cut my hair because I went to see my grandma for Thanksgiving. And she really didn't like my long hair. And my grandma is the sweetest and kindest person in the world. So anyway, this New Year's special is going to be a recap. But not just of all the things you may have already heard. If you wanted to know what we covered this year, you could just listen to the podcast, as most of you did. Instead, I'm going to talk about some of the things I learned this year while doing the podcast and doing research for the podcast. I want to talk about what it was like doing a podcast, brand new to doing interviews and having recorded conversation with complete strangers. I'd like to start today with some of the interesting things I learned researching the podcast that never got brought up or may have only been briefly touched on. I'm going to do this by walking you through what a day off with me might look like. I start my morning, as most of you probably do, with my first drug of the day. I grind up some coffee beans, brew a pot of coffee, and then sit and have my morning cup with my avocado toast and a good book. I start the day off with a stimulant and get that feeling of excitement as the caffeine enters my bloodstream. By now, some of you are probably rolling your eyes. You might be thinking something like, Yes, caffeine is a drug, but come on, man. It's not like a drug drug. Before researching this podcast, I would have rolled my eyes as well. But one of the wonderful books this podcast led me to this year helped me to see this drug differently. The book was This Is Your Mind on Plants by Michael Pollan. The book focuses on three different natural drugs, opium, peyote, and coffee and tea, caffeine. I learned some interesting things about the history of this drug that is the most widely used psychoactive substance on the planet. We even give it to our children. This doesn't seem strange after all. If you're like me, you probably don't even remember the first time you had caffeine. I just always remember it being a part of my diet, mostly through soda and tea and chocolate. Would we find it strange to give cocaine to a child? 
I can feel those eyes rolling again. But cocaine is another natural stimulant found in coca leaves. And when the leaves are brewed in a tea and the cocaine isn't extracted and snorted in a higher concentration, it's actually a mild stimulant more similar to caffeine. And children in some cultures do drink it the way our children would drink a cola or a glass of sweetened tea. And let us not forget, the original Coca-Cola contained cocaine, and that's where it derived its name, coca. Cola, coca leaf, cola. Did you know that most sleep researchers abstain from caffeine? That the majority of people in our culture are sleep deprived, even if they average a full eight hours of sleep every night? This is because they aren't getting enough deep sleep. Deep sleep is a vital stage of sleep where our brains reorganize and store memories. And this lack of deep sleep is largely due to our consumption of caffeine. The quarter life of caffeine is 12 hours. This means that if you have a morning cup of coffee at 8 a.m., then 25% of that caffeine is still active in your brain at 8 in the evening. And what if you're like me and have an afternoon cup of tea or a Red Bull? The point is, maybe after your morning cup, you should lay off caffeine for the rest of the day. The problem is that most of us are actually addicted and a lot of people have a physical dependence and will actually have withdrawal if they stop cold turkey. Caffeine withdrawal can include headache, fatigue, anxiety, difficulty concentrating, depression, irritability, and even tremors. So maybe my morning drug of choice isn't as benign as most of us think. All right, does that about do it for the discussion on caffeine? Nope. That's right. There's more, and it's actually really fascinating. Did you know that caffeine was at the core of the age of reason and enlightenment, the industrial revolution, and capitalism itself? That without caffeine, the world would be vastly different, for better or worse, than the one we live in today. Before coffee, the drink of choice had been alcohol, and not just at night for the purpose of getting drunk, but all day long for quenching thirst. This was a period where the water was not drinkable. To drink a glass of water could lead to illness and even death from bacteria in the water causing dysentery. They hadn't yet learned that boiling the water would kill the bacteria, and so their best option was alcohol, because alcohol killed the bacteria. So workers and mothers and politicians and soldiers and even children drank booze constantly. When coffee was introduced, the water was boiled in the brewing process, and so now society had another beverage option, and many preferred the stimulating effects of coffee over the depressing effects of alcohol. As a result, more work was done. More innovation happened, Workers in factories were no longer beholden to their biological circadian rhythms and would work longer hours. Soon, it wasn't the pubs where people met to debate politics or philosophy or shipping and trading routes. It was the coffee house. And women were not allowed in coffee houses, so they started their own social gatherings at their homes where they would drink tea. And this is where the tradition of the tea party began. This is why still today, tea is viewed as more feminine than coffee. One last important thing to consider before moving on from my morning cup of coffee. Coffee and tea were major drivers of the African slave trade, where slave labor worked the fields under brutal conditions to produce the raw materials to make these beverages. How many people back in England sipping their coffee and tea ever actually considered where it came from? Did they, did they know that they were drinking delicious and affordable cups one after another on the backs of atrocious human suffering? 
Today, things are actually only slightly better. When you go to a coffee shop and buy a $4 cup of coffee, do you know how much of that $4 makes it to the farmer who grew those coffee beans? Only a few pennies. And most of those farmers and their families live in extreme poverty. Also, another alarming fact, the International Labor Organization estimates that there are 150 million or more child slaves working to produce commodities like coffee and cocoa. So when you buy your coffee, research the brand and make sure it is fair trade certified. Today I am drinking the brand Black and Bold, a fair trade certified brand that also gives 5% of profits to youth-centered causes, and it is available at Target. Okay, so after my morning coffee and breakfast, I like to meditate and then go for a run. But before that, I like to consume my second drug of the day, THC. Today, I will light a joint of Indica Sativa hybrid called Citradelic Sunset. I take a few drags and then I go into meditation. The cannabis smoke releases THC into my lungs and I get a light, relaxing, blissful high, and I find it easier to clear my mind and quiet that incessant flow of nonsense. I am able to find the present moment. I find my Sunday psychedelic spirit. Then I go for my run. The THC also makes the run easier and more enjoyable. I almost forget I'm running. And then just before the two mile mark, I get hit with my third drug of the day, the runner's high. Now there's debate on what chemicals are at play here. They are all endogenous, meaning they occur naturally in the body. In next week's podcast that was pre-recorded last week, Carlin informed me that new research suggests the runner's high is a release of our endogenous cannabinoids. THC is a cannabinoid that binds to our cannabinoid receptors in our endocannabinoid system. We have our own natural occurring cannabinoids that are structurally similar to THC. It has been long believed, however, that the runner's high is caused by our body's release of our natural pain-relieving endorphins, which is what the runner's high feels like to me. The word endorphin, as I learned this year, comes from combining the two words endogenous morphine. Endorphins are naturally occurring opioids. I believe the runner's high is most likely a combination of both endorphins and endogenous cannabinoids, and also other neurotransmitters like dopamine, which is released when we drink coffee or snort cocaine, and serotonin, which is structurally similar to LSD. So after my run, I decide I want to try and write a song. And I feel like a micro or mini dose of LSD will give me the focus that I could get from an amphetamine like Adderall, but also adding instead of taking away from my cognitive plasticity, which is something else I learned about this year. Plasticity is the quality of being easily shaped or molded. In biology, however, it is the adaptability of an organism to changes in its environment. I'll come back to the former, which led the CIA to experiment with psychedelics in the hope of using them as mind control weapons. But with the latter, this adaptability is great to have cognitively when working on fiction or an art project, or for me, writing a song. A drug like an amphetamine or cocaine will get me focused, but too focused. I tend to get stuck on a specific thing, unable to think outside the box. A word or phrase or a chord progression that I cannot get away from because I lack the adaptability. Cannabis is also great for cognitive plasticity. So after I eat a quarter 
of one blotter paperhead of LSD, I put a sativa-heavy hybrid strain of cannabis called strawberry diesel in my glass pipe, and I take a few drags. Now I'm ready to begin writing a song. This brings me to my New Year's resolution to stop procrastinating. For instance, if you are listening or watching this on New Year's Eve, the day it was released, know that I shot this entire thing yesterday. I had plenty of time to finish it over the last two weeks, but I am the king of procrastinating. I should play, I should play in death on my Oculus because it's a good workout, or let me sharpen my dart game. I should water my herb garden. Then by the time I'm ready to sit down and write a song, half the day is gone. So 2022 is the year I stop procrastinating. Everyone should have a resolution and stick with it. Or see how long you can stick with it. If I can make it to March, I'll be happy. So after procrastinating, I spend the next three hours writing a song I name Revolt of the Guinea Pigs. It's a song based on the 60s movement in the Bay Area of California. The Revolt of the Guinea Pigs is a phrase I learned this year reading the book Acid Dreams by Martin A. Lee and Bruce Schlein. The guinea pigs were the young people of the 1950s and 60s in San Francisco who were unwittingly dosed by the CEA, CIA with all sorts of drugs ranging from PCP and speed to STP and, of course, the drug they really thought could be promising, LSD. The CIA operation was called MKUltra, which, by the way, is not a tinfoil hat conspiracy. The operation was declassified in 2001, and the surviving information was released to the public. The CIA would dose people and then follow them around and observe them and take notes. A strange and voyeuristic part of MKUltra was called Midnight Climax, where the CIA hired prostitutes to slip drugs like LSD into men's drinks at the bar and then hit on them and then take them back to the hotel and have sex with them where the CIA would secretly watch. <sighs> that is so creepy. The good part of this story was the revolt. The revolt of the guinea pigs refers to the counterculture movement that came out of these experiments when the mind control hypothesis proved to be false, and in fact, people under the influence of LSD tended to be harder to brainwash, which is the very reason the young people in the 60s were the first generation of Americans to stand counter to the goals of the American war machine. They strongly opposed the Vietnam War, and protests erupted all across the country. Protest songs were sung and heard all around the, the globe. This revolt, however, was what led Nixon to wage a war on drugs. He passed the Controlled Substance Act in 1971, creating five schedules for drugs and penalizing them heavily, especially the drugs that hippies and black people like to use. And also with this came a major propaganda campaign to ruin the reputation of the peace, love, and harmony drug, LSD. With stories of people taking LSD and thinking they could fly and leaping off buildings to their death or the man who believed himself to have been turned into a glass of orange juice and that if he tipped over, he would spill and die. And so he spent his life standing in the corner of a mental institution. Or the kid that went blind by staring at the sun for so long it melted his eyes. Though there may have been an occasional tragedy during this time period, most of these claims were pure fiction. The suicide and schizophrenic rates did not decrease or increase during this time period when LSD was introduced to youth, culture, and became extremely popular. I myself have taken LSD a hundred times or more and find it absolutely amazing. 
Though earlier in my experiences with LSD, I had some frightening trips because of the anxiety that came from all the stories I heard in D.A.R.E. and other propaganda that swam around our culture. This idea that a wrong dose of LSD, a drug given the unfortunate nickname acid, could cause permanent psychosis, led to some bad trips myself, fearing that I was going insane. And this propaganda campaign is the reason that still today, LSD is not being used in most psychedelic research labs. Why nonprofits like the one John Sharp works for, who was on this podcast, the Beckley Foundation, chose to use psilocybin instead of LSD, which was the founder Amanda Fielding's first choice. But as the dust settles from the disinformation of the drug war, and as information is spread more freely, the truth is slowly finding its way into the light. And that's a good segue into why I wanted to do this podcast. Then we will get back to my wonderful drug-filled day. Okay, so it's 1971, and I'm a journalist, and I start seeing all this propaganda, all this uh, misinformation about LSD, and I write an article pointing out the absurd exaggerations. I expose the truth and the reasons everyone is being lied to. It's 1971, and there is no internet. The only way I can get people to read is to publish it in a magazine or newspaper. But all the major publications are invested in the anti-drug movement, and they're actually in on the propaganda. My article would never see the light of day, not in the mainstream. Or say I was a documentarian, and I made a documentary about the misinformation. There's no YouTube or Hulu or Netflix. There's only a few channels owned by a few networks, and they are all invested in the anti-drug propaganda. A lot of it coming from them. I'm a radio broadcaster in 1971. Everything is censored by the FCC, and almost all the FM stations are owned by a few large corporations. They are all in bed together. The radio stations, the television networks, the press, the newspapers. And because of this, they control 99% of the opinions that Americans hold. We don't live in that world anymore. The internet has changed everything. They have lost their monopoly on information. And I'm thankful for the new giants on the block like Apple and Spotify because I get to do my podcast uncensored, spreading the truth about this god-awful, inhumane, racist, insurmountably expensive, and unwinnable war on drugs. That's why I wanted to do this podcast. Because I could. Because I heard people like Dr. Carl Hart talking openly and honestly about using drugs and the negative impact the war on drugs has had all over the world. And I was ready to join the conversation. I began feeling that with all the books I've read and stories I've heard and things I've been through myself, that it would actually be selfish and lazy not to do this podcast. The truth is out there for the taking. And when it comes to prohibition and the war on drugs, I know I'm right. And it needs to end and all drugs need to be legalized and regulated. So in January of this year, I went to the drawing board, literally a drawing table my wife got me for Christmas, and I started working on the artwork. I lined up some guests, starting with people I knew personally, and I wrote a bio and outlined what the podcast was going to be. My wife's stepmother does web design. I hired her, unsure of how she'd feel about the podcast and the whole drug topic, but she was super cool and did an outstanding job. Next, I set up the spare room that I'm sitting in now as a studio. Finally got that drugged in head shop inspired room with a bong and pipes and 
tapestries and art. And I put a special bookshelf with all the books that are on the podcast subject in one way or another. I bought an extra mic, headphones for my podcast guests. And luckily, I already had most of the recording equipment and knowledge I needed from my music career. I set a launch date for March 15th and released my first three episodes as planned on that day. Hosting a podcast was not as easy as I thought, that it would be just hanging out and having a conversation. As soon as that re the record button is pressed, the conversation feels unnatural and I get nervous. At the beginning, and even still now, though I'm getting a little better, every slight pause I'd try and jump in to fill the dead air, even if I rambled or came in off topic. Have you ever talked to someone you admire, like a great teacher or a distant family member who is really successful or someone you idolize? You don't want to sound stupid, so you try and sound extra smart and it backfires. The conversation becomes forced and nervous and weird. That's how I feel almost every podcast, but it's getting easier. I picked my buddy Michael O'Neill for my first guest. We see eye to eye in the drug war and he's very intelligent and a great musician. And we dove into a conversation. I was nervous as soon as I hit that record button, but it felt great to do it. My next guest was another like-minded local musician, DJ Big John, who helped me set up my podcast launch party at his bar here in Fort Myers called Eden. My third and recurring guest was my sister, Kristen Jones, who has her master's in Latin American studies and she's a great guest for talking about the cartel problem south of the border. A problem that started when we started the drug war and is kept in place by our prohibition laws and is fueled by Americans' money and guns. And I was thrilled to learn that it was my podcast and not my sister's master's degree that opened her eyes to the problems our drug war has created. This meant that my podcast was actually working. I reached out to my childhood friend, David Buckley, who owns the Pied Piper head shop chain in the North Carolina mountains, and he's been a recurring guest as well. I reconnected with my childhood friend, Dustin Matthews, who now grows medicinal cannabis for a, he does it for a living in Florida. I talked with ex-addicts, musicians. I did a drunk New Orleans special in New Orleans with my close friend, Brandon. We hung out late night on the street with the homeless in the French Quarter. We bought them snacks and beer and cigarettes and even got one of them a room for the night. I left my GoPro on the sidewalk and a homeless man with face tattoos was waiting outside our hotel the next morning so he could return it, proving so much of the stereotype wrong. I spent three months researching and working on the opioid crisis special and I learned so much about what is actually going on. Most importantly, it's not an opioid crisis, it's a regulation crisis. Later in the year, I hired my good friend Kevin to help with social media and emails, and he has helped to get a lot of guests who are great for the topic of the drug war. I've talked with harm reduction people, paramedics, journalists, and last week I had my first author guest, David Poses. Peacenicks, this has been an incredible journey so far with ups and downs, and I've learned some amazing positive things about the world, like William Leonard Pickard, who was serving a double life sentence for his alleged involvement in an LSD lab, he was released just last year. Oregon decriminalized all drugs and multiple cities and some states are slowly rolling back the prohibition of natural psychedelics. I learned about amazing things other countries are doing with drug laws like Spain allowing free testing of all street drugs which are decriminalized. I also learned some tough hard truths about the world this year that thousands have been executed for drug possession and selling in the Philippines under the rule of Rodrigo de Torte, 
that 33,000 people were murdered in Mexico in 2018 because of the cartel problem, that 100,000 people died in the U.S. in the past 12 months because people don't have access to opiates, safe access. This year has been quite a journey, and thank you all for going on it with me, for listening and sharing and not judging. I'm putting it all out there. I'm ta- I've talked openly about smoking crack and being addicted to Vicodin and getting arrested. I'm out of the closet. Or should I say, I'm out of the drug cabinet. So now that I'm out, now that we have recapped the Peace on Drugs 2021, let's get back to my day, shall we? I had my morning cup of coffee. I smoked some bud. I meditated and went for a run. I took a small amount of LSD. I smoked some more bud. I wrote a song called Revolt of the Guinea Pigs. I'm done working for the day because after all, it's a day off. So I head out to my local pub that's a mile from my house. It's a warm, breezy, beautiful, sunny day in Southwest Florida. The bar is crowded with locals and a few tourists and snowbirds, all there to catch a buzz from drinking alcohol. This is how they will enjoy their vacation or their night off. I order a beer for myself, my next drug of the day. Immediately I feel the warm, relaxing sensation of alcohol enter my bloodstream and I want to accompany it with a stimulant. I pull out my jewel and take a drag. Nicotine enters my blood and I'm feeling great. Ready for some fun bar talk. I take another sip and ask myself, have I learned anything interesting about alcohol this year? Well, I read about a study done by David Nutt in the UK on the dangers of multiple substances. Each substance studied was assigned a harm score, a number that represented how dangerous the substance was based on its effects to the user and to potential harm the user could cause others while on the substance. Meth harm score was in the 30s. Crack was 50. Heroin, 55. At the top of the list was the most dangerous drug at 72. Alcohol. I look around at all the people legally enjoying their drug of choice. Alcohol via beer or wine or liquor and I think of the 100,000 overdose deaths we had in the past 12 months. Every single death, someone's son or daughter, mother or father, someone's friend. Every life, a life that would have been saved. A loved one someone would still have in their lives had they been allowed to consume their drug of choice legally, the way people all around me are enjoying theirs. I think of all the lives that wouldn't be ruined from arrest and criminal records. Every family that wouldn't be ripped apart by imprisonment. I realize that I'm not a podcaster. I'm an activist. And there is so much more work to be done. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to our email list at www.thepeaceondrugs.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at The Peace on Drugs. And keep listening and sharing and spreading the truth. I love you. I hope you have a wonderful New Year's. I will see you in 2022. Peace Peace out. out.